Good evening, and welcome to Rare Book School 1997, week one. Let me begin with an apology. The exhibition, which will assuredly appear in these cases by Thursday, when I will be addressing you from this podium myself, is not yet finished. Uh, we lost uh, all access to our computer network on Friday and did not get it back again until Sunday, Cabell Hall having lost all electricity during that period. That's where our server lives. So uh, we're a little bit behind on a variety of fronts, as you can imagine. If I had to suggest a time when it would be most inconvenient of the 365 days of the year in which we lost our server, there's no question whatsoever it would be starting Friday in week zero and it would last until Sunday in week zero. So, uh, yet we continue. And in a traditional fashion, it's always a great pleasure to welcome Thomas Tansel to these proceedings. He has spoken to the Friends of the Book Arts Press and to Rare Book School so many times, nobody can remember how many anymore, and it's always a great pleasure to welcome him here. G. Thomas Tansel. Thank you, Terry. It's always a pleasure for me to return to Rare Book School. <clears throat> Whenever language is written on tangible surfaces, it acquires visible and tactile components, for it becomes part of a physical object that can be seen <clears throat> and touched. And just as spoken language is regularly interpreted in the light of the speaker's manner and other aspects of the situation in which the utterance occurs, so the physical setting of written language plays a role in readers' responses. The visual display of tangible language has been increasingly studied in recent years as part of an interdisciplinary trend in which the visual attributes of artifacts are being scrutinized more intensively than ever before. A year ago, the Chronicle of Higher Education, always alert to movements in scholarly fashion, ran an article entitled visual images replace text as focal point for many scholars, describing the growth of so-called visual culture as an historical field that brings together scholars from such traditional disciplines as literature, philosophy, art, film, and anthropology. One stimulus to this movement is no doubt the general dominance of film and video in the last half of the 20th century which has led to greater awareness of the importance of visual communication in the centuries before those media existed. Another influential factor is the increasing emphasis over the last third of the 20th century on the study of audience responses to cultural products and the accompanying view of creative works as socially constructed. For if the intentions of individual creators are subordinated to the broader context of an historical moment, then even those genres not usually thought of as visual will attract visual examination, since the visually perceptible features of the objects conveying the works formed a significant part of what their audiences were confronted with. In the study of books, these attitudes have produced the style of publishing history known as Histoire du Livre, 
where the goal is to gain insight into the social impact of books. In textual criticism, they have caused authorial intention no longer to be the virtually exclusive concern of scholarly editors, many of whom now look at texts as the results of complex sets of social forces and regard the physical settings of texts as integral to their perceived meanings. Analytical bibliography, as traditionally conceived, has not been concerned with visual effects, since it has focused on the pre-publication history of books and has primarily used clues that were not meant to be noticed. The people who are called analytical bibliographers would not, as a rule, consider the aesthetic study of book design or the effect of design on readers part of their domain, which has been limited to manufacturing history and has not encompassed the life of books after they left their producers' hands. Some of the recent writers who take a social approach to books and texts, however, have used the word bibliographical in a general sense to mean pertaining to the physical book. Jerome McGann, one of the prominent commentators on texts as social transactions, thinks of books as consisting of linguistic codes and bibliographical codes, both of which are read by readers. And following his lead, other writers have been using the term bibliographical codes in the same way. Although they have not explicitly called their work analytical bibliography, anyone who analyzes bibliographical codes must be an analytical bibliographer. Some people may wish to resist this enlargement of the scope of the term as blurring a useful distinction, but it is futile to try to control the evolution of usage, and in any case, what matters is whether the concepts covered by the term have logical validity. It is unimportant in the end just how we define analytical bibliography, so long as we understand clearly the relationships among the endeavors brought together under that heading, and so long, of course, as each of those endeavors is justifiable in its own right. The study of how the physical presentation of texts has influenced their reception over the years is clearly a valid pursuit, since the experience of every reader bears witness to this connection. Intellectual history as a discipline has not in the past paid much attention to book design, but henceforth, thanks to the new emphasis on the visual, it will have to recognize that the physical form of texts is one of the factors to be considered in accounting for the influence or neglect of certain ideas in the past. What this kind of investigation has in common with traditional analytical bibliography is that both are concerned with deciphering the physical characteristics of books. Although though the details relevant to each pursuit are largely different, the two activities both involve reading the nonverbal features of books as evidence for reconstructing portions of the past history of those books. The two focus on different past moments, but both are necessary to tell the full story of books. And there is a logical neatness in associating the two under the rubric of analytical bibliography. 
If we agree to think of analytical bibliography in this logically comprehensive fashion, we might at first believe that the way to distinguish its two branches is to say that one seeks to reconstruct production history and the other reception history. But a moment's reflection reveals that this division is not quite right, for the aesthetic decisions underlying a book's design are part of production history, and yet they belong with the study of reception, which can then encompass both intended reception, envisaged by authors, publishers, and designers, as well as actual reception experienced by readers, leaving production history limited to manufacturing. This distinction can be more directly stated in terms of the kinds of physical characteristics relevant to each purpose. I suggest that one branch, traditional analytical bibliography, be thought of as concerned with the analysis of manufacturing clues, and that the other, the social and visual approach, be defined as dealing with the analysis of design features. This phrasing allows for the fact that some details fall in both categories while accurately conveying the distinction between the purposes for which the details are examined. The analysis of the design features of books can concentrate on one or both of two stages in the history of any book. The first is the pre-publication stage in which the typography and layout are determined. Bibliographical analysis with this focus attempts to assess the extent to which the various elements of design were deliberately chosen to convey certain effects or meanings to the reader and the extent to which they were a more passive reflection of inherited traditions and contemporary trends. The second stage, the open-ended period following publication, comprises the responses of successive generations of readers to the design thus created. Analysis with this focus examines the role of design in causing the texts of particular editions to have been interpreted as they were by readers of given times. Any of these analyses involves examining the physical characteristics of, of books in the light of as much historical context as can be assembled but the pre-publication stage poses a complication not present in the post-publication one. Whereas the design of books always has some effect on readers, visual design was not always considered by authors to be an integral part of their texts. Some authors did make use of visual effects or orchestrated the typographic design of the books carrying texts of their works and regarded such visual features as contributory to literary meaning. But other writers had no concern for book design or did not think of the visual presentation of language as a characteristic of their work. And though publishers generally had some intentions regarding design, even they varied in the degree to which they manipulated design to try to produce particular responses and in the extent to which they were willing to accommodate authors' desires, if any, in this regard. All these matters require sorting out in a thorough analysis of the life story of every book. Intention is always a problematic concept, 
but the grounds on which an historical concern with intention has been attacked in recent years are often incoherent. One can understand why those persons who wish to look at published texts as social constructs are not very interested in authorial intention, since it is the collaborative process of publication and the resulting product that concerns them. But authors do have intentions, and their intentions, like all other past events, are legitimate goals for historical investigation, even if they become mixed with the intentions of others in the publication process. One cannot logically object, as some have done, that intentions are ultimately unknowable. There is some degree of uncertainty attaching to all historical reconstructions, including, one may add, those of readers' responses. But that does not invalidate the effort. Intentions are either of interest or not of interest. And if they are of interest, the difficulty of retrieving them is no reason to abandon the attempt to learn as much as possible about them. Because the intentions of authors and publishers are often different, if not actually in conflict, historical analysis will be more revealing when it tries to distinguish those intentions rather than treating the publication process as an irreducible amalgam of individual intentions. Sometimes scholars of the social history of books think they can bypass intention by focusing on books and texts as they in fact were published. Indeed, they can if they wish to limit their investigation to post-publication history. But if pre-publication history is to be considered, intentions are inevitably a part of it. For books and texts as published do not necessarily achieve in every respect the results intended by their publishers or intended collaboratively by all the persons involved in the production process. And in any case, the published results do not make evident the motivations that underlay them. It is clear, then, that intention of some sort is integral to the study of visual effects in books, just as it is to textual criticism even when one chooses not to concentrate on authorial intention. But paradoxically, authorial intention in these matters has sometimes been overestimated in recent years, despite the general move away from interest in such intention in textual study. The increasing recognition of the role of visual effects in perceived textual meaning has led some people to criticize traditional textual criticism, largely intentionalist, for neglecting the visual, and then, in reaction, to exaggerate the extent to which visual effects were created by authors. Intentionalist editors, however, are pledged to present what they regard as authorially intended texts. The fact that they do not often reproduce visual features from first or early editions does not in itself mean that they are insensitive to the effect those features may have had on contemporary readers. What it is more likely to mean is that they have judged typography and layout not to be among the authorially intended characteristics of the texts. Most writers, after all, have not regarded such features as a part of their work. 
The new interest in the visual is certainly a desirable development, but it should not blind us to the necessity of discriminating between visual effects that were authorially intended as part of the text and those that were not. This distinction is, of course, easier to make in some instances than in others. The visual is obviously integral to shaped poetry, such as some of the poems of Herbert and Treherne, of Mallarmé and Apollinaire, and of 20th century concrete poets, or to shaped passages in prose, such as those that occur in Charles Nodier and Lewis Carroll, or to certain illustrated <coughs> novels, such as are found in the work of Thackeray and Mark Twain. Even here, there are further distinctions. In Herbert, for example, only the shape and not the typeface is textual, but the type design is also generally integral to concrete poetry. In the large majority of texts, where there is no obviously pictorial element, it may be correspondingly more difficult to decide which aspects of the typography and layout, if any, should be considered part of what the author intended. But the attempt to make such decisions is essential for the most illuminating kind of publication history, just as it is for informed textual criticism. Furthermore, it is important to understand that the analysis of design features cannot be conducted independently of the analysis of manufacturing clues. In the same way that traditional analytical bibliography dealing with manufacturing processes can set limits for literary criticism, it can also provide a check on the interpretation of book design. <coughs> a neat illustration of this interconnection has recently been provided by Chef Rogers in an article in Studies in Bibliography pointing out an error in Jerome McGann's book, The Textual Condition. McGann, wishing to illustrate what he called Ezra Pound's performative typography, had argued that the presence of an italic T at the opening of one section of Hugh Selwyn Mauberly, when all the other section openings in the poem have decorated initials, constitutes Pound's bibliographical allusion to the practices of early printers who made substitutions when the supply of required types gave out. This argument is supported by the fact that Pound wrote on the proofs, use italics. The old printers did this when fancy capitals ran out. According to McGann, the supply of fancy teas had not, in fact, run out because an Eliot pamphlet printed by the same printer in the same year uses decorated teas in six places, and Mauberly did not call for more teas than that. The defect in this argument is that it completely ignores the printing process, <coughs> assuming that an entire text would be in type at once. But no more than two decorated T's were needed in any form of the Eliot Quarto, whereas three were required in the form of the pound octavo where the italic T was used. Only two decorated T's, identifiable by their distinguishing peculiarities, appear in the Eliot and Pound books, and apparently Pound understood that the printer possessed only two. The argument that the italic T was, in McGann's words, 
a deliberate moment of modernist constructivism in the text, is thus falsified by two basic techniques of standard bibliographical analysis, the determination of format and the identification of individual pieces of type. Any interpretation of the intended effect of a specific example of typography must be consistent with the technical process that produced it. With all these considerations in mind, we may now look at the three interrelated approaches that can be taken to the design features of books, what I am calling the psychological, the cultural, and the aesthetic. Each of these approaches can provide insight into what book designs meant both to creators of books and to the audiences for books. And all three should be employed together to achieve as full a picture as possible. The vast historical literature relating to typography, paper, and binding is, of course, relevant to these analytical pursuits, but it is for the most part a body of work distinct from the analytical literature I'm describing here. Traditional historical studies of bookmaking practices bear the same relation to the bibliographical analysis of design features as they do to the bibliographical analysis of manufacturing clues. In both cases, analytical studies of individual books furnish the data for broader historical generalizations, which in turn form the background knowledge brought to bear on further analysis, which may then necessitate revised generalizations, and so on. Of the three angles of approach to the history of the production and reception of the design of tangible verbal texts, the psychological has been the least used by students of book history, though the psychology of reading is undoubtedly a basic subject for understanding readers' responses. Perhaps the most useful starting point is the classic work of Cyril Burt, the eminent British statistical psychologist who in 1959 published the results of a series of experiments in book form as a psychological study of typography with an introduction by Stanley Morrison. That Morrison, as a prominent type designer and typographical historian, was attracted to Burt's work symbolizes its dual usefulness, both as practical guidance for producers of printed matter and as essential background for historians of readers' responses to such matter. The great merit of Burt's approach was its realistic breadth. Earlier studies of legibility had tended to concentrate on individual letter forms, but Burt focused on the grouping of letters into words and sentences. Furthermore, he saw the importance of content and habit in individual responses. Efficiency of reading is significantly affected by whether the genre or subject of the text is already familiar to the reader and whether the type design and layout are traditional for that kind of material and are expected by the reader. Although Burt says that his statistical results are not intended to make a contribution to the historical study of typography, they clearly do have implications for historians concerned with the physical book. Since readers' typographical preferences are, at least partially, conditioned by their previous reading experiences, any survey of such preferences has a historical dimension. And therefore, conversely, 
any historical study of typographical conventions tells us something about the reader's responses that help to support the maintenance of those conventions. Just as a book designer can take some practical hints from Burt, so a historian can use Burt's line of thinking in analyzing the motivations of book designers in the past, as well as the ongoing responses of readers to the books thus designed. These motivations and responses are often partly conscious and partly unconscious, and one of the strengths of Burt's study is that this combination is taken into account. To the historian, book designers' or readers' conscious attitudes are, if not placed on record, just as difficult of access as their unconscious motivations, but both are part of what the historian wishes to reconstruct, and the findings of a psychologist like Burt may be of particular assistance in setting the framework for thinking about the unconscious influences in book designers' choices and readers' responses. Legibility, after all, has a physiological aspect. A desirable length of line, for example, is related to comfortable eye movements. Such factors affect readers' attitudes toward given layouts, whether they realize it or not. And the empirical studies of psychologists are useful in giving specificity to what would otherwise be merely vague guesses about some of the biological bases of reading. Historians of the book may not find it easy to use such information, but they should recognize more often than they ever have that one element in any comprehensive account of reader response is the physiological and that book designs of the past need to be analyzed from this point of view. In 1967, eight years after Burt's book, Merle Rolstad of the Cleveland Museum of Art started a quarterly called Journal of Typographic Research. The title did not specify a particular approach because the aim of the journal from the beginning was to welcome work by psychologists, historians, and designers among others, for Rolstad was convinced that there are, in in his words, no sharp breaks, no boundaries, where the realm of science ends and those of the humanities and art begin. The opening article was on the effect of line lengths, spacing, and right margins on the speed of reading, and many more studies of this kind were to follow over the years. But, of course, such articles could have appeared in a number of psychology journals, and what made Rolstad's distinctive was its interspersing of these articles with others that one would normally find in the periodicals of bibliographical societies and in graphic design magazines. By the end of the first year, there had also been articles on traditional analytical bibliography, the history of typesetting machines, and concrete poetry. This mixture has the same effect as the appearance of Morrison and Burt in the same volume. It makes readers see interdisciplinary connections that may not have occurred to them before, at least not in any detailed way. Four years later, Rolstad changed the title of the journal to Visible Language and described the journal as what could be the first concerted effort to organize our investigations of every respect of this visual medium of language expression. He never lost an opportunity to emphasize this inclusiveness, 
And those bibliographers who considered his magazine outside their field, there were many such, had simply not gotten his message and unwittingly illustrated the difficult task his journal had tackled. In the late 70s and early 80s, Rolstad was also instrumental in organizing several international conferences on visible language, which resulted in a series of anthologies reflecting the same mix as the journal. A member of this week's Rare Book School faculty, Michael Twyman, who appeared in two of these volumes, can be taken to symbolize the kind of integration that Rolstad was championing. Twyman is both an historian of printing with a specialty in the history of lithography and a graphic designer, but he also writes papers, such as these two in Rolstad's volumes, that recognize the effect of spatial arrangements in cognitive processes. In one of them, he offered a case study of tabular presentation in the early 19th century, and then concluded that although the period had been associated with a decline in design because historians have focused on linear prose, it can be seen as a time of exciting innovation if one looks at its experimentation with the configurations for presenting reading matter. Twyman's work fit well into Rolstad's program because it illustrated how a concern usually associated with psychologists, the manipulation of text for ease of comprehension, could illuminate historical study. The openness of Rolstad's view was captured by what Gunlager Bream said at the time of Rolstad's death. He knew statisticians and visionaries, scientists and typographers, flat earthers and scholars, and was kinder to most of them than they deserved. Rolstad's magazine remains as a reminder of his integrative challenge, which so far few bibliographers have addressed. What I'm calling the cultural approach to the analysis of book design <coughs> can be illustrated by a class exercise used by D.F. McKenzie. He opened his centenary lecture to the Bibliographical Society by describing how he used to show his students a blank book block, that is, a set of folded sheets sewn in gatherings without a binding or printed text, and asked them to say what kind of text the blank book was designed for and to date it. Through the evidence of the kind of paper, the format, and the bulk of the whole, the students always came to the correct conclusion that this book block was a dummy for a mass market novel of the 1930s. In the process, they demonstrated that some historians, even in an unknown language, still more evidence would have been available in the typeface design, the size of type chosen, the space between lines, the arrangement of running titles and page numbers, the amount of margin space, and so on. In other words, an acquaintance with the styles of bookmaking associated with specific genres or classes of writing at particular times and locations enables one to place a given book in a historical setting and to know something of the way its text was viewed by its producers and its readers. It is in the nature of conventions to be employed and received unthinkingly, but they are not for that reason unrevealing and departures from conventions are likely to be intentionally emphatic statements 
and recognized as such. One is never surprised to find an Elizabethan play in quarto format or a Victorian novel in three octavo volumes, but those styles are as informative as are the exceptions to the general rule in indicating how the authors and publishers wished to have the texts regarded and how the book buyers and readers were likely to have regarded them. This kind of analytical use of book design to enhance the historical understanding of culture must rest on familiarity with period styles. It is concerned with broad trends and their reflection in individual items more than it is with the idiosyncratic employment of design features by authors and publishers to convey meanings supportive of those in particular verbal texts. This latter I'll turn to in a moment. The present concern is with the sort of knowledge gained through first-hand observation of large quantities of books from all periods, supplemented by the many historical surveys that exist. The truly analytical examination of the connections between book design and cultural history does not have an extensive literature, and much of it is associated with Stanley Morrison. The idea that typography and layout, like other arts and crafts, reflect the intellectual and political milieu of which they are a part is implicit in most of what he wrote, and he often made it explicit as well. Morrison concluded a 1944 lecture, for example, by saying, in typography, style is a reflection of style imposed upon works of art in general by the most significant accomplishment of the period. But he also recognized that such imposition of style coexists with the creativity of individual designers. <clears throat> in the hands of a fine craftsman, he said, an appropriate type will suggest an atmosphere, point the conception of an author, and in short, go, go more than halfway towards illustrating the book. His historical approach to the subject made clear that the prospective employment of a design and its historic use are two sides of the same coin. Whenever Morrison looked at a page of manuscript or printing, he saw a record of dramatic action, the ad adaptation at a particular past moment of a social and cultural inheritance. This insight is reflected in the title of his great final work as published in 1972 from his Lyle Lectures of 1957, Politics and Script, Aspects of Authority and Freedom in the Development of Greco-Latin Script from the 6th century BC to the 20th century AD. The book deals more with letter forms than with layout and more with authority than with freedom. What it attempts, in Morrison's words, is to account for a 25-century process in which letter forms have been conditioned by movements in religion and politics. Morrison acknowledges at the outset, this undertaking fits somewhat uncomfortably into the contemporary range of bibliography. But bibliography is finally beginning to come round to his view that the analysis of the historical forces embedded in book design is one of the illuminating ways to examine physical evidence. As Morrison says in a sentence that has since been quoted many times, 
The bibliographer may be able, by the study of the physical form of a manuscript or book, to reveal considerations that appertain to the history of something distinct from religion, politics, and literature, namely the history of the use of the intellect. In effect, Morrison here places bibliographical study in the context of the investigation of all artifacts for all objects produced by humanity, whether or not they carry verbal texts, can be read as evidences of intellect operating within historical circumstances. Morrison's book, founded on this vision, is one of the grandest in conception of all bibliographical works. To pursue a subject of this breadth inevitably entails what Morrison modestly called his casual guesses, and he emphasized the tentative nature of his conclusions. His book is perhaps a risky model for lesser hands, but his learning and judgment make the book not only a monument, but also a framework for further research. His broad outlines are endlessly suggestive of more detailed studies, which bibliographers should now produce in order to fill out or modify the larger picture he painted. But that picture, whatever flaws it may be shown to have, puts bibliographers in the position of seeing or knowing that they must learn to see all letter forms and their usage against a rich backdrop of historical forces. The year after Morrison's lectures were delivered, Bertrand Bronson published a pioneering essay entitled Printing as an Index of Taste in 18th Century England. Bronson argued for a greater awareness of what he called the multiform influences connecting book design and the other arts. From this point of view, he examined not only the visual elements in title and text pages, but also the implications carried by format. His essay is only a preliminary exploration, but since Morrison's lectures did not appear in print for another 14 years, Bronson's piece served for a considerable time as perhaps the best introduction to the idea of analyzing book design for the cultural meaning it carries. And in any case, Bronson's focus, not being on letter forms, was on a different aspect of this complex subject from Morrison's, as was Nicholas Barker's in a 1977 Wolfenbüttel lecture on typography and the meaning of words. Barker sketched out some of the evidence for a revolution in the typographical layout of books in the 18th century, both in title pages and text pages. And he urged that the study of layout be made a standard part of bibliographical research. In this plea, he noted that such study, quote, involves putting yourself into the skin of the person who took the decisions which resulted in the appearances which you now see. The effect of Barker's use of the word decisions is to emphasize the fact that intentions, with their subconscious component, were involved in every act of following, as well as departing from, a traditional practice. And thus, the trying to get inside the skin of whoever was making these decisions means attempting to understand the contemporary associations of each usage. Such associations existed, of course, in the minds of readers, or some of them, as well as of the producers of books, and the reader's perspective was emphasized a decade and a half later in a pair of suggestive papers by David McKittrick, 
which round out <clears throat> what may be thought of as a core group of introductory essays on the topic. McKittrick's theme is readers' typographical awareness, and he imaginatively uses the responses to type facsimiles and purported facsimiles as a way of assessing the precise limits of readers' recognition of national, period, and genre styles. One could sum up the central lesson that McKittrick is trying to teach by saying that the history of reading must have a large bibliographical component, an admonition analogous to that of the new bibliographers at the other end of the 20th century when they insisted that literary criticism must be grounded in the physical book. In the first of McKittrick's two essays, he called what is in fact an impressively wide-ranging series of examples a scattershot collection of observations. One is reminded of Barker's description of his own contribution as a first fumbling essay and Morrison's suggestion that his work might be entitled Drafts of Notes Upon Inferences. The immense complexity of the subject inevitably causes initial surveys of that complexity to seem scattershot and fumbling, but these writings do provide some of the necessary insights that will allow others to go to work, filling in the details of specific situations with a firm sense of purpose. The third approach to analyzing book design may be called aesthetic to suggest its concern with the role of the visual in the artistry of individual verbal works. The aesthetic approach, to be sure, is not entirely distinct from the cultural, for an alertness to cultural history must always be present. Authors and publishers, for example, may make conscious use of elusive design to link a current work with a past tradition and expect the design to have an effect, conscious or unconscious, on the way the work is read. But in this situation, the design is more an element of meaning in the work that it is a reflection of contemporary design. Furthermore, a design need not allude to the past to have been deliberately planned by an author or publisher to produce certain responses in readers. What I mean by the aesthetic analysis of book design, then, is the attempt to understand the intended role of design in particular verbal works, as well as the effect of such designs, whether the intended effect or not, on readers. This usage subsumes the more usual sense of the aesthetics of typography, for one must be able to evaluate the artistry of type and layout in order to undertake an historical analysis of how that artistry may have been used and responded to by individuals in the past. Whereas the cultural approach reads book design for broad trends reflective of a given time and place, the aesthetic approach looks at the role of such design in the intended and received meanings of specific verbal works. Just as Mackenzie's analysis of a blank book illustrates the cultural approach by linking specific book forms with particular genres of writing, so his 1977 analysis of the octavo collected edition of Congreve's works serves as a paradigm of the aesthetic approach by showing that the design of this edition was an intended part of the meaning of the works it contains. 
Mackenzie explains in great specificity how Congreve consciously used design elements, such design elements as letter-spaced, large and small Roman capitals in headlines, or ornamental drop initials for act openings, to, quote, shape the book as a definition of himself and his creation. In the publisher Jacob Tonson, Congreve found, in Mackenzie's words, the perfect instrument for giving public form to his authorial intentions, and the two were at one in serving a common goal. Mackenzie's discussion, which is rich in historical detail, explores the typographic heritage available to Tonson and Congreve, but makes clear that the layout of Congreve's 1710 edition is not simply the outgrowth of a tradition, but is rather a conscious and innovative shaping of design to convey Congreve's literary ideas. Mackenzie's discussion of Congreve will remain a touchstone for anyone hoping to demonstrate an author's employment of typography. A companion landmark with which Mackenzie's piece will always be associated is David Foxon's 1976 Lyle Lectures, which explore Alexander Pope's relations with the book trade and show how Pope came to control the design of the volumes in which his texts appeared. The primary case study is Pope's translation of the Iliad, appearing just after Congreve's collected edition and revealing another major author's equally independent handling of format and layout. When Pope chose quarto format for subscribers' copies and folio for trade copies, he was departing from a long tradition of regarding folio as the more luxurious format for monumental works. And the example of his Iliad, which was an assertion of his sense of the classic, served for others as a new model, which became the dominant fashion within a few years. The most influential of Pope's departures from conventional practice were his abandonment of routine capitalizations of nouns and his elimination of italics for proper names. Foxen shows that these changes not only reflect Pope's desire to classicize, but also his understanding of the role of the visual in textual communication, for he made different typographical decisions for different audiences. Removing the conventional italics only from the quarto copies intended for the privileged group of subscribers. Foxen's study of Pope and Mackenzie's of Congreve form a unit in many ways and together open the last quarter of the 20th century as a new era in the examination of book design. It may be that Mackenzie's discussion more thoroughly shows the literary meanings conveyed through typography, but both scholars clearly demonstrate how authors manipulate design for their own purposes and both confront some of the implications for textual criticism. Although one cannot generalize from the habits of Pope or of Congreve before him, the lectures of Foxen and Mackenzie should cause scholars and other readers to be more alert to the possibilities of authorial uses of typography, and they provide excellent models by illustrating the importance of a detailed knowledge of book trade history as an underpinning for typographical analysis. These lectures have been followed by a number of studies of authorial command of visual presentation in earlier and later periods. 
But the more recent works have not usually offered the depth of historical reference that Foxen and Mackenzie were able to marshal. An example is Jerome McGann's Black Riders, which tackles the enormously important subject indicated in its subtitle, The Visible Language of Modernism. Despite its historical impressionism, this book makes an important contribution to the understanding of modernist writing. Whereas everyone knows that many of the major modernist poets employed visual effects, the kind that are readily understood to be a part of the text, such as extra spacing between words, the use of capitals of varying sizes, the positioning of line breaks, or the relative placement of poetic lines, McGann shows that some of the typographic features not widely recognized as textually significant were also used deliberately by authors. He explains, for example, how the particular combination of ornamental initials and text type in Pound's first two collections of cantos defines, in his words, the historical nexus that Pound was concerned with, recalling at the design level both the rich weight of Morris's medieval elusiveness and the elegance and simplicity of the Bodley Head page. But when McGann proceeds to examine concrete poetry and related movements as beneficiaries of what he calls this bibliographical inheritance, he blurs an important distinction. For there is a distinction to be made between, on the one hand, the basic elements of book design, such as typeface, margins, paper, format, and on the other, idiosyncratic visual displays within the text. All are elements of the visual field encountered by readers, but the former are not all or always used by authors or designers to convey meaning. A concern with intended effects, as McGann's is here, requires confronting this distinction, but he does not sharply focus on this point. His goal of showing, in his words, how the physical aspects of writing are made a conscious part of the imagination's activities is certainly to be applauded. But the line he draws from Morris and Pound to Bob Brown and Susan Howe could be more illuminating if the constituent elements of the so-called bibliographical had been more acutely differentiated and tracked. The book remains valuable, but is at the same time an object lesson in one of the difficulties facing anyone who engages in this kind of bibliographical analysis. The discrimination I have in mind can perhaps be clarified by glancing at John Sparrow's writings on the art of inscriptions. The title of his 1967 anthology, Line Upon Line, expresses his approach more revealingly than the title of his 1964 Sanders Lectures, Visible Words, for he was concerned entirely with the role of lineation in meaning and did not consider letter forms. Although he framed his inquiry in general terms as how far the eye can play a part in the appreciation of a work of literature, He defined the inscription as a form in which the composer thinks in lines. That a sensitive reader of visual form like Sparrow neglected the role of letter forms 
is symbolic of a general imbalance that exists in much of the recent writing on visual meanings in literary presentation. And there is a great deal of such writing, as exemplified in titles like Word and Visual Imagination, Expressive Typography, Language and Typography, The Stuff of Literature, Physical Aspects of Texts, and Their Relation to Literary Meaning, and so on. Although this outpouring is greatly to be welcomed and contains some excellent work, it displays a tendency to focus on book illustration, layout, and typographic displays, and to disregard the quieter but no less expressive background made up of specific typeface designs, type sizes, type page dimensions, and the like. The burgeoning field of literary materiality can become more illuminating if it develops a greater awareness of all the forms of bibliographical analysis that are required for a comprehensive account of a book's design. The printed page is a space in which one can observe a complex interplay of conscious decisions and historical forces. Our understanding of what we are seeing there and what past readers saw can only be enhanced by analytical rigor, causing us carefully to distinguish traditions, intentions, and responses, and also comprehensively to encompass all the visual features present, not just selected ones. Artifacts are extensions of the bodies of those who produced them, embodiments of thoughts sent forth into the world where they become part of the physical surroundings to be perceived by others. One of Walt Whitman's most famous remarks was his assertion that who touches leaves of grass touches a man. By his choice of the verb touches, he showed that he was thinking of the physical embodiment of his words and not just disembodied language. As a printer himself, it was natural that he should think in these terms and that he should write a poem called A Font of Type, in which he celebrated the physical basis of communication by seeing the pallid slivers of types as a repository of unlaunched voices. The voices we hear through the marks printed in books are not just those of authors, but of designers, printers, and publishers as well, and of the cultures and politics they inherited and engaged in. To appreciate this story properly, we must finally combine the psychological, cultural, and aesthetic analyses of design features with the results of the study of manufacturing clues. This grand project is still in its infancy. Although printed books are regularly considered one of the most important of all classes of artifacts, much of the information they convey as objects remains to be extracted. The objects are our link to human beings of the past, both those who created the objects and those who encountered them. And the goal of bibliographical analysis is to bring us into closer contact with both groups of individuals, their activities, and their thoughts. Thank you.